As the great rock god Alice Cooper once said, school is out for summer, but summer school is in, and it is all about school of rock. Let's hit it. Hello and welcome to another fantabulous episode of the OST Party. This is a movie soundtrack podcast where movie fans and music fans come together and have a rocking good time talking about all your favorite movie soundtracks. Hi, my name's Joseph Wade. I will be your host for this evening. Here with me tonight is my lovely and belligerent co-host, Libby Codemore. Libby, happy summer. Happy summer, indeed. We are at Hot Vac Summer. All is looking well. I'm wearing a jumpsuit as we record. I'm wearing board shorts as as uh, custom. Yes. So all is all is well. How you doing? I am doing just fine. How about yourself? I think you literally just asked that. Did I really? Oops. Yes. Well, you know, you know, I, I literally cracked one open before we started. I haven't even been drinking it yet. So that's funny. I am a lost cause. Anyway, <laughs> tonight. On the show, we are discussing the 2003 rock and roll classic, School of Rock. Yes, indeed. I love this movie. I forgot how good it is. Like, I haven't yeah. seen this since I saw it in the theater, and it's and, fantastic. And sometimes, you know, we, we pull out these movies. We found this with, you know, movies like Cool World, um, where you remember loving it, and then you're like, this is terrible. And then you, you know... Ones like this, you watch again, you're like, oh, man, this movie just makes me feel really good. It's like Footloose in that way. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so one pure. of those modern movies that's kind of becoming, it's slowly becoming a classic, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, wow, to, this... to the point where, you know, this movie already has a Broadway show and a Nickelodeon TV series based on it. So, Which is now available on Hulu. Absolutely. Yeah, go check it out. So, yes. before we, you know, get into it, I think... After we announced this, about a week after we announced this, unfortunately, we learned that um, Kevin Clark, who plays Freddie, the drummer, was killed in a hit and run while uh, while cycling. So uh, I guess this one's kind of dedicated to him. We're really sorry to hear that. Yeah, this one's for Kevin Clark. I guess a, a moment of silence is in order. That's Yeah. Because yeah. he really is, like, he steals the show. I know that... Um, uh, the guitar player Zach is sort of supposed to be the, you know, one of the main kids, but really it's it's Spazzy McGee there. Yeah, like Spazzy <laughs> McGee really. He's the one who goes goes toe to toe with Jack Black the best. Yes. He's yes, indeed. Great. So you are missed, buddy. Rest in peace. Oh man. Anyway. So yeah, before we get into I guess School of Rock, let's go to billboarding school for just a moment. Uh, so yeah, the movie movie was a pretty big hit on a thirty five million dollar budget. It made one hundred and thirty one million dollars, and the soundtrack hit the charts on October eighteenth, two thousand three, at number one sixty six. Now the number one album that week was Outkast's Speaker Box, The Love Below, and the top okay. soundtrack was the the soundtrack to the Cuba Gooding Jr. film The Fighting Temptations at number thirty one. Do you huh. remember that? Sort of. Like vaguely, maybe. I don't okay. know. <laughs> it's like well, it's like Sister Act for dudes, right? I think so. That, probably, yeah. Maybe that sounds know. about right. 
Uh, but the the School of Rock soundtrack lasted on the charts like six weeks. It peaked at number ninety five. So it, despite the fact that the movie was popular, the soundtrack kind of wasn't. Yeah, and I think we'll get into into why going mm-hmm. forward. Yeah, so I, I can think of a couple of reasons. But yeah, the soundtrack. Uh, fell off the charts at the end of November, and the week it fell off, uh, Jay-Z's The Black Album was number one, okay. and the top soundtrack was the was the soundtrack to Tupac Resurrection at number two. Well, in 2003, we're seeing a radical shift in the musical landscape. Yes. And which I think is part of the film. Not as much, I think, as it, as it could be. Uh, but we're gonna actually. I want to. We'll talk about that a little a little later on because there's a, a moment where you really see that that shift. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I guess the last note I'll give y'all on this: the soundtrack itself was nominated in 2004 for best compilation soundtrack at the Grammys, uh, and it lost to the soundtrack to Chicago. Can you really call Chicago a compilation, though? I don't think. I mean, a compilation of singers, I suppose. Because I mean, Chicago's a straight musical. It's a musical, right? And it should just be a a like the cast album of the film, right? Yeah, because you know, and that's that's one of the differentiations differentiations we've made on this podcast. The reason we don't do a lot of musicals like Chicago is because we want to talk about these compilation pop soundtracks. Right. There's like a, an art to the construction, and if you're just gonna put the film on a disc where's the fun in that yeah and a mu- the musical is a completely different genre than yeah, exactly than the soundtrack so that hmm okay i i disagree with that i love i mean i love chicago chicago is one of my favorite musicals and i think i saw that movie like four times in theaters but hmm okay yeah it's just it's an odd yeah. choice um but yeah we'll, we'll get into a little bit more about the the music landscape of 2003 a little bit later it's going to be depressing. We're just going to warn you. <laughs> yeah, as as there are so many things on the OST party tonight. Yes, indeed. Uh, but you know what? No, we, we can't say that because School of Rock is actually genuinely positive and uplifting. And it's just it, wonderful. It's a really joyful movie. And again, we talked about the around 2001, obviously, when the world changed, to have a movie like this as we're, you know, in the Iraq war, uh, the fact that everything just seems scary and horrible, which it has been ever since, to have School of Rock, like this lovely confection, was quite pleasing. And it really is a family film. There's kind of the lost art of the family film as movies stopped being PG and went either G or PG-13. You sort of lost that 80s and 90s PG rating. This one really is sort of for the whole family. Yeah, and uh, I think a, a large part of that has to do with uh, the the star of the film, Jack Black, who like this was written as a star vehicle for him. And at the time, he was he was kind of big as like a a, a comic relief character actor in movies, but then with uh, High Fidelity was was his real big breakout moment. And again, also with his act, uh, Tenacious D, he was known as a big music guy. So I think they just put two and two together and it made sense to put Jack Black in a big music movie like this. And it's funny because I hated Jack Black until I saw this movie. I just thought he was just like a dick. He's a dick in high fidelity. I don't really like Tenacious D all that much. It's a little bro-y for me. And so when my boyfriend, Aaron, 
wanted to see this movie. I'm like, oh, here we fucking go. And <laughs> I was so charmed by it. It completely changed everything. And now I would I would walk into a volcano for Jack Black. I think most of us would. He's one of the last pure human beings. Yeah, he's so. he's one of the few like Hollywood celebrities who seems to have taken uh, the COVID quarantine well. And um, if you read interviews with the the kids, he kept in touch with all of them. He would just like make up games with them and sing to them all the time. Like he was really active in being present with those kids on the set and talking to them and just hanging out with them. And these were not child actors. Uh, you know, one of the big things with this is that they went and held auditions for kids who could play guitar, play drums, who could sing. Um, really only Miranda Cosgrove, who plays Summer, was a an actress. And, and as such, she's really the only one of those who went on to do anything beyond this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most of them, uh, you know, went on. I mean, Some of them still played music. Um, I know Kevin Clark was a, a drummer in a lot of different bands around Chicago. So, I'm... Um, but yeah, so Jack Black was was good to the kids and, and a man who's good to kids and also knows a lot about rock. It's okay by me. <laughs> that's right. But that's also kind of just like the – that's basically the plot of the movie is they're taking this character. I mean he's basically playing his the version of Jack Black from Tenacious D in this movie. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're taking this character who's like crazy and ridiculous and somewhat – R-rated and forcing him to like contend with children and forcing him to like act like a normal human being mm-hmm. like that. And it, it turns out over the course of the film that he actually like has the sweet side that comes out and he starts acting like an adult with responsibilities. And he, you know, he has an actual character arc in this film, his character, which I guess is a good enough place to start talking about the movie. Yes. So school of rock is about Dewey Finn played by Jack Black, who is kind of a, he's a, a wannabe rock star who's just gotten kicked out of his band no, called No Vacancy. And the song that starts the film is a No Vacancy song. It's a song called uh, Fight for Your Love. <laughs> Let's go to a clip. It's terrible. You were in my corner. The sad thing is, this is the best No Vacancy song. It's sort of yes. like if a grindcore band was covering Rush. <laughs> yeah, I said this, this sounds like a Christian rock version of Kickstart My Heart by Motley Crue. <laughs> it's not terrible. It's just not great. And I don't, it's not supposed to be like great. It's supposed to be rockin', uh, which it definitely is. It's just not all that memorable. Now, uh, the whole thing in this scene, which has that incredible tracking shot. I'm going to say it right now. Richard Linklater is a better, uh, like, sort of rock and roll director than Cameron Crowe. There, I said it. Um, I would agree to that, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it goes to the tracking shot into the club where No Vacancy is playing. And, and Dewey Finn is just, he's rocking too hard. And he's making all sorts of weird faces. Now, he reminds me so much of my friend Marvin Beter who is the bass player for the upstate New York metal band, Deveria. And when we saw Deveria opening for Battle Beast 
at Upstate Concert Hall. You know, you've got the lead singer, and he's got the long, straggly hair, and he's like, Suicide Forest! And then there's Marvin Veter, and he is just making the goofiest faces, just rocking out on the bass. They are not serious faces. They are, like, dad joke faces. <laughs> and I was so charmed by this that I sought him out after the show. I was like, can I have a pick? Can I have a set list? And he gave it to me, and we are friends on Instagram to this day. Oh, that's amazing. I know. He's like, he's my buddy. I love that guy. I would do anything for him. But even then, like, that's the kind of move that, like, Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick can pull and pretty much nobody else. Yes, exactly. You have to be very confident to do something like that on stage. Yes. But it doesn't work because Dewey tries to stage dive and no one catches him. Yeah. Which, and, and this is something we'll see throughout the course of the film. This was apparently in, inspired by an actual event that happened to uh, Ian Asbury from The Cult. We tried oh, to stage yikes. dive, and uh, it did not go well for him. Oh no! What were they? Were they playing the witch from the Cool World soundtrack? Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> it really wouldn't. But like little moments, little like rock history moments like that are kind of peppered throughout this film because what this really winds up becoming is kind of like a plea for like rock history as a serious study. Yes, indeed, and. This, you know, the, he's trying to rock and he's he's definitely, you know, again, wearing his, his influences very clearly here. Um, and you see somebody texting like this band sucks. Mm -hmm. And this is not what the people of 2003 want to hear. And there's a variety of reasons for that. But uh, we're going to focus on the really dumb ones going forward. Right. Yeah. So. And um, so a after this... Uh, you know, Dewey is confronted by his roommate and his roommate's girlfriend, who basically and the, the roommate to, is Mike White, the screenwriter. Playing yeah, that. screenwriter Mike White, and then the girlfriend, Mike White's character's girlfriend, is played by Sarah Silverman. Yes. Now, two thoughts here. One, I would die for Dewey's record nook. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's like what I dream my bedroom looks like, even though he's sleeping on a mattress on the floor. Um. Also, th if this film has any shortcomings. It's that all the women in it are shrews. I really, really, really hate Sarah. Sil I don't like Sarah Silverman as it is. I hate her and always have. Don't like her in this movie, especially. Yeah, I, I get the point of that character, but like, I think she plays it too hard. And I think also we were seeing a lot of these kind of characters in movies at this time. This was a real rise in like bro filmmaking. Oh, yeah. And it got really tiresome very, very quickly. And it's funny, as you watch this as an adult, I'm sitting here watching it, and she's saying, you know, you need to pay your rent, you need to, you know, get your life together. And I'm thinking, she's not wrong. Oh, no, no, no. She's and, like, that's when you know you become an adult, when you're like, no, Sarah Silverman <laughs> has a point. Yeah, like, they're, they're, when I was logging this one on Letterboxd, which is the most 2005 thing I've ever said... I noticed a review that said, like, you know, growing up means watching this film and realizing that Dewey should be in jail. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of true. But, yeah, like, they, they they tell Dewey that he needs to pay his share of the rent and like, maybe, maybe you should sell your guitar, to which he replies, like, would you tell Picasso to sell his guitars? Yes, and, and he says that he serves, he serves society by rocking, which is society needs people to rock and roll. So he is doing his part. We salute you, Dewey Finn. 
He's out there trying. That's all you can do. He's on the front lines of rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Keeping it alive. And then to make matters worse, he gets kicked out of his band. Yes. And, but, and, and replaced by a guitar player named Spider. Now, fun fact about Spider. He's played by an actor slash model named Lucas Babin, who is also the district attorney of Tyler County, Texas. Oh, my God. Wow. I, I mean, The dude at him. the end of the film who is just wearing sleeves. He is the district attorney of Tyler County, Texas. So anyone trying to run against him for that position can just put that picture of Spider up there. And it's like, dude, is this the man you want for the job? And obviously <laughs> they said yes. <laughs> but uh, I mean, my question is, Dewey, do you really want to be in a band with a dude with a Celtic knot tattoo? Yeah. I mean, and this, again, was, this, this was 2003 and you kind of couldn't avoid that. This is violently 2003. Yeah, like this is Yikes. this is deep in the heart of like Creed, Nickelback, uh, third awful band territory. You know, like this is like the the not not even the new metal era. This is the post grunge. Like, I don't even know what to yeah, call it. Yeah, I think what they call era. adult alternative. Oh, uh, fuck off! No. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's grunge for dads. Who have a bachelor's in business? <laughs> like wear khakis on the weekend. That's what this, what no vacancy is going to become, and what those other bands, yeah, like Creed, oh, it's, really it, were. It's MBA core. I get it. Yes. TM. Tra- trademarking that. <laughs> and Theo says that you know, oh, we want to get a record deal. It's two thousand three, and no vacancy is never going to get a record deal. They just suck. Yeah. Like the only way they're getting a record deal is if they go on like America's Got Talent or something. But they, but they don't have talent. Yeah. That's they're the terrible. Thing. They're just a proto Daughtry. Re- oh God. I wrote that exact note. Yes. <gasps> they are you a proto Daughtry. <laughs> We've been like, doing this podcast for too long. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the second song. We'll get to that one at the end of the film, but like the second song is so Chris Daughtry. It hurts. Yes, indeed. Oh, Uh, God. So, yeah, Dewey is in quite a quandary until the next day he gets a phone call from uh, Horace Green Elementary School, who is looking for his roommate, Ned Schneebly, because he is a substitute teacher and that school pays very good money. So Dewey decides, what the hell? I can be Ned Schneebly for a day and becomes the substitute teacher to this fifth grade class of kids uh, who he eventually decides is going to become his new rock band. Yes, and this is all uh, set to The Clash's Stay Free. the clash i enjoy the clash i don't know that i'm ready to say i love them. i do and i actually the, i don't have any of their albums on vinyl which i really need to get on but um i love just their intense devotion to melodies because a lot of punk bands sort of focus more on the hook and mm-hmm. these guys just they wrote just incredibly intricate and beautiful melodies that still thrash and rock 
Yeah, and I'll say I actually I really like, and I know this is going to be a, a bit of a controversial co- opinion. I really like the Combat Rock album. Yeah, Combat Rock's good. Yeah, because I mean, it's got it's got Rock the Casbah yeah. on it, and it's it's got uh, Should I Stay or Should I Go, which I'm actually not a fan. No, of. I don't like that one either. That's probably my least favorite Clash song. But it, you know, they they switch things up so dramatically. Like they do, they do a funk song. They do, you know, a couple of punk songs. They do, just they run the gamut of genres, and that album is just so solid, start to finish. Yeah, straight to hell is is fucking amazing. It really is, and and again, they were they're intensely talented musicians, and they don't just fall into like that that sound. Because we'll get to a Ramones track later, and while it is considerably darker than most Ramones songs. It's still, you're like, yep, that's a Ramones song. Like they have a, it's immediately recognizable. And the clash, the clash were sort of more than that. Um, and also I love songs about, you know, like suburban escape Mm -hmm. and that, that kind of like, you know, looking back on, on wild times with your friend. So I really, really like this. Yeah, and and it's kind of, it's kind of like thematically relevant to the movie. Like like Linklater or whoever he has choosing songs for him, like they picked some very good songs that actually like weave in and out of the out of the film very mm-hmm. well. This is this is a really really good because it's sort of it could be about his relationship with Ned because he and Ned used to be in a band together, mm-hmm. and Ned has sort of left that behind for you know the sort of. Khakis and polo says, shirt, suburban life. Was he says he's like I'm not a sex god anymore. I'm a working stiff. Now. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's also man. here that we meet Joan Cusack's character, Roz Mullins, the principal of Horace Green Academy. Her tie is perfect, and I love that she is here, seeing as how John Cusack was in High Fidelity with Jack Black. Now, I prefer Joan Cusack to John Cusack. I find John Cusack insufferable. Uh, yeah, I think Joan Cusack is, is the funnier one. Yeah, also, only one of them was in an Adams Family film. Precisely, yes. Only one of them was on Saturday Night Live, damn it. <laughs> I love her, even though I think she has a very, very weird and unsettling way of speaking. She does. It's a very, like, upper Midwest kind of accent. Yes, but it's like she has corks in her cheeks. <laughs> She does. Very specific. Again, just like the Ramones, it's a very recognizable voice. Like you hear that, you go, that's That's Joan Cusack. Fucking Cusack. Um, And of course, Dewey is, you know, he's kind of a wild one. He tells the kids he's hungover, that they could just have recess, and those kids are not fucking having it. A couple of them are. A couple of them are like, yeah, this is, you know, we'll, we'll be lazy for a day, but then, you know, kids like Summer are just, you know, they want to learn and they want good Ugh. grades. So the fact that this guy is just going to sit there and do nothing all day, they're not going to have that. Uh, yeah, no My parents did not spend, what, $12,000 for recess, God, she says. Summer's the worst. She really She's is. terrible. I can't stand her. Um, no one likes a snitch, Summer. Yeah. Um, and I'll have to talk about gold stars. And God, remember when that like that meant something. Yeah. The threat of your yeah. permanent record. Mm-hmm. You're just like, nothing matters. I mean, I'm still convinced that somewhere out there, my permanent record is just waiting to have, you know, some terrible transgression etched onto it. What would it be? I, fucking, I don't know. Yeah, I think that this podcast, maybe. 
The worst thing I think I got written up in high school for, I was late a lot, uh, but that's because my locker was on one side of the building. It was 1999. Everyone was wearing platforms, Ooh. and you try running to math class in platforms. That yeah, no shouldn't happening. Um, no. But I got written up, I think, a lot for wardrobe. Mm. So my skirts were too short, and I wore belly tops because I'm sexy. Um I got yelled at a lot for for wearing headphones to and from class, which apparently you're not allowed to do in school. Yeah, I got I got busted a lot for listening to music. I finally just started lying, being like, "Oh, it's um educational tapes," and they're like, "Oh, carry on." Like, man, you're fucking dumb, <laughs> fucking idiot. Oh boy. So, um, but I I like when he's you know saying how, you know, learn pl- like run around, play, relax. Like that is a better curriculum. Yeah. Everyone needs to learn how to play. Everyone needs to learn how to relax. Yeah, especially these kids are in fifth grade. These kids are wound so tight. They really are. Oh, God. It's at this point that I want to mention the fact that this classroom is classroom 21B. And I want to believe that's a really obscure Star Wars reference, but I'm not sure. What would it be a reference to? 21B is the robot that helps Luke out after he gets attacked by the Wampa. I don't know. He's in, the, he's in the water tank, and there's that robot there plugging the things in. I don't know whether I'm really sad that you know that, or that you caught it if Richard Linklater knows it and put it in, like a joke just for Joseph Wade in the year 2021. <laughs> if it is a Star Wars reference, what's it doing here? Why not? You know? Why not? That's holy shit. And then you recognize that. Like you just, oh my God. But anyway. Art Carney didn't die in vain, face down in the mud in Vietnam, so that you could <laughs> do this to me. <laughs> Tell it to be Arthur. <laughs> Good Lord. What's wrong with us? A lot. Oh. So, yeah. So Dewey, <laughs> Dewey spies the kids in their music class. And discovers that they're all talented in one instrument or another. He sees Zach playing the uh, classical guitar. He sees Lawrence on the piano. And he sees, what's his name? He sees Freddie smashing those cymbals like crazy. And he hatches a plan. And he immediately runs to his van and picks up two guitars. Because he obviously just carries guitars around in his van with him everywhere he goes. Yeah, his van is rocking. Yeah, of course. But this is all set to the tune of Cream's Sunshine of Your Love. Let's take a listen. I'm with you, my love. The light shining through on you. Yes, I'm with you, my love. It's the morning just we two. I hate Cream. Really? I really hate, and I, I'm not a huge fan of like the psychedelic sound anyway. But mm-hmm. one, I think we've made our like dislike of Eric Clapton abundantly clear on this podcast. The two other times he has shown up, we've just reminded everyone that we hate him, and our hate is justified because that guy is an anti-vaxer and he sucks. He's an anti-vax weirdo. And, like, he just went off the deep end. This yeah, year. and we fucking called it. So we've been hating on Eric Clapton for years now. You're mm-hmm. welcome. Now, I actually wrote my notes backwards somehow because in my notes for this song, I reference a song that we're about to talk about in a minute. 
where I basically say I prefer this song's version of like 60s psychedelia to the Doors version that we're about to listen to. Yes. Um, and I think it's just because I prefer Cream's version of just like guitar, bass, and drums, strip it down to its barest essentials, and it's just plain rock and roll music. No, I just don't like I the, the discordant sound of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I get it. I understand. This <laughs> film lives so, the, this film soundtrack lives so firmly in the fucking fuzz box. Oh, 100%. Yes, it's it just does. like, okay, enough is enough. And I, Cream gets booted. I'm going to boot Cream. <laughs> it just sounds okay. like Paisley. Mm, yeah. This song sounds I, like Paisley. I, see, the moment you said that, like, I pictured that in my head. I was like, yep, I can't argue that. It sounds like specifically Paisley polyester. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. And it smells like sweat and chest hair. <laughs> also, Eric Clapton sucks. I don't have any jokes for that. That's that's a 100% Libby Cubmore original, everybody. Yes, indeed. Well, luckily, it goes right into uh, The Doors Touch Me. Yep. So, with a couple stop-offs at a couple other songs, we'll talk about that Those very quickly. Let's talk about uh, The Doors. Can't you see that I am not afraid? What was that promise that you made? No, yeah, cards on the table. I just, I never got the doors. I never quite understood what they were doing. See, and I feel like that's a failure on my part because I feel like I should understand this. See, I didn't understand the doors honestly until this moment, as we okay. were prepping for this soundtrack. Um, and I've me. never been a huge fan of the doors. Again, I'm not really big on that kind of psychedelia. I don't own a black light. But suddenly hearing this, I'd never paid attention to the horn section before. And it might be time to reconsider. Like, this is kind of okay. wild. I don't, the, the two words that I always associate the doors with are floofy and intellectual. And they just don't add up to like exciting rock music to me. That And that's, and, I'm not going to yeah. argue that. I always think of t-shirts on dirty boys because when we were going through that huge 60s resurgence that we went through in the mid 90s i knew so many boys who wore jim morrison t-shirts and they were always dirty they just always they smelled like uh patchouli some of them had white boy dreads later on oh god and yeah they're they did not come from good households but some of them were pretty cool um but yeah it was like hippie boys were really into the doors even in 1996 um this i mean this is a classic and it's kind of bordering on cliche but with a good reason i kind of dig this song it's no people are strange that's their best but yeah there and i got a soft spot for roadhouse blues too and of course, like the the reason this is on the soundtrack is because this is the song that Dewey kind of shows Lawrence how to play on the piano or on the keyboard to sort of get him into uh, joining this rock band. Yes, and he also he shows Zach uh, Black Sabbath's Iron Man and uh, ACDC's Highway to Hell, uh, mm-hmm. and he just is starting to teach them about classic dad rock. Really, right? Like he's 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 appropriating their. Uh, classical music training and turning it into a classic rock band, mm-hmm. which right in front of us. 
is kind of wild. And again, part of it comes out of that there was a big classic rock resurgence um, in the late 90s with the release of like the Beatles anthology, obviously the uh, the Doors movie with our friend Val Kilmer. Um, mm-hmm. And just... Like a lot of classic rock acts were still on the charts. Like ACDC had big hits. Bruce Springsteen, the U- U2, the Rolling Stones were still touring. So it's, I mean, they're still touring to this day. What am I talking about? Yeah, well, but like gonna... Classic rock was still very much a thing. And I think in 2003, it was the t- very tail end of that. Yes, and this movie is still trying to preserve that as it falls off in favor of newer acts. It, yes. um, Which is, is interesting looking at it now, because we're going to talk about Stevie Nicks a little later, but TikTok teens are sort of reviving classic rock again. Yeah. Like with Fleetwood Mac's dreams, very famously. And so we went through a phase, though, where classic rock was out, but Jack Black is still, like, holding on to it for these kids. Mm-hmm. So, um... It's a noble cause. It is, indeed. So, and, um, Lawrence, especially, you know, he says, oh, I'm not cool enough to be in a rock band. And Dewey's like, no, you're cool. You're going to be cool because you're in a rock band. I just want to... F- like take a moment again to speak about how Dewey just radiates positive energy. It's such a contrast to how he was just a few scenes before he discovered music, the music that's going to unite them because he was telling them, you know, like just give up, just quit, you know, nothing matters. Your dreams are hopeless. Um, he goes on a long rant about the man. Yeah. And how, um, you know, MTV killed music. So Jack Black might argue the video killed the radio star. He, he very well could have, yeah. So, um, but in this moment, he switches and is actually about to become a very positive force in all these kids' lives. And sometimes just telling a kid that they're cool is the best thing you can do because them hearing that from an adult, it's amazing. Right, because like from if an adult says it, it must be true. Exactly. So I always try to you know tell my nieces and my nephews like you guys are cool. Yeah. Because that's important. And yeah, just hearing that validation, especially at that age, like just as the hormones are about to hit, it's crucial. And, and of course, it, it has to be said at this point in the film, it, you're, you're not entirely sure if Dewey genuinely means this or if he's just trying to get all the kids on the same page about his plan. See, I think this is the moment where he turns mm-hmm. and like he means it. I think this is I- it. Yeah, okay, yeah. You know what? I, 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 see, I see it now. Yeah. yeah. Um, he then he... assigns everyone else their parts. Um, and I'm, I'm a little disappointed because um, this is set to Back in Black by ACDC. It's not on the soundtrack. It would be nice to have ACDC return to the OST party. Mm-hmm. We last had them on uh, Beavis and Butthead to America with Gone Shootin'. Yes. And I was, I was a little disappointed to find that they're not actually on the soundtrack. Yeah, because like if there's any one aesthetic, if any one band's aesthetic is like present in this film, it's ACDC. Yes, and they cover it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll, but it's the kids, right? It's not quite. But also, the like the, the 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 marketing, the the poster for the movie, it's Jack Black wearing the Ang- the Angus Young outfit, basically. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's a very 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 big ACDC influence, and yet not actually on the soundtrack but alas um so we've got the costumer we've got the the groupies um we've got security everyone has their part and then they pledge allegiance to rock to the yes. band i pledge allegiance 
To the band. To the band. Of Mr. Schneebly. Of Mr. Schneebly. And will not fight him. And will not fight him. For creative control. For creative control. And will defer to him on all issues related to the musical direction of the band. Which honestly, if I ever become a teacher, that's exactly what I'm doing to my students. <laughs> Make them pledge allegiance to me. <laughs> I'm going to be teaching at a uh, summer camp later this year, so I'll have to have my kids do that. Yeah, do that. Mm -hmm. Tell us how it goes. I will. <laughs> um, and we, uh, Summer, of course, objects to being a groupie. Mm -hmm. And I don't like she. I don't like this because she kind of slut shames. She's just like they just sleep with the band, and I'm just like child, please. But it's 2003, and this movie does have some weird issues around women. Um, but this is all set to the Who's Substitute. Yeah, let's take a listen to that. perfect needle drop it really is isn't it so i'm kind of surprised it didn't it didn't come a little earlier it's i mean it's a song about you know faking it until you make it i mean in the song it's about a relationship but it could just as well apply to anything so um yeah because it's just about how this this girl is yeah faking she's it. too cool and he he's a substitute for some other guy as he says yeah until he realizes she's not she's not any cooler than he is and decides that he's too cool for her. <laughs> now, the line, uh, I was born with a plastic spoon in my mouth, is one of the greatest images in all of rock and roll. I absolutely love that line. It's it's, it's so good. I love like, the who. And, and my, my question was like, is this an, uh, is this an obvious cue for us to see? Yes. Does it work? Also, yes. Yes. Um, well, ACDC gives a lot of the look and the feel to this film. The who is probably the biggest musical influence on the title track. I think so, yeah. Oh. And when we when we get there, like we'll we'll break it down because there's lots of little bits and pieces that kind of it pulls from other artists, mm -hmm. kind of matches them all together into one song. But yes. the Who is like is a big part of it. Yes, and um, so I, I think having this, the almost really this late in the film, I mean, it's only you know thirty minutes into the film, but it it almost seems late. Um, and I do love songs that are made up of contradictions. Mm-hmm. This one has always, always been a, a classic. And it's it's one that, you know, it's a little bit of a cliche among Who fans. Right. It's like Pinball Wizard. Yeah, which, you know, that comes from the same album, I think. Well, it wouldn't have I mean, come I, from the Tommy album. Right, yeah. So. But, I mean, like I learned this just the other day. This is the song where Pete Townsend introduced his windmill technique. Yes, which uh, we're going to see Zach use. Yeah, shortly. yeah. Shortly. So. so, yeah, all, the, all those little influences start to filter into the film. Mm-hmm. It's really cool. Um, and he asks them what their influences are, and they give the most predictably 2003 influences, including Christina Aguilera and Puff Daddy, also Liza Minnelli, yeah. which yeah. I love. No shame on Liza Minnelli. The other two, meh. But so Dewey starts naming off all these bands, and the kids are just kind of like, what? Huh? Who? And he gets incensed. And I'm like, what? What do you mean? What do you kids mean? You've never heard of bands from 30 years ago? Yeah, but do these kids not have dads? 
Well, look look at These their are dads. Standard issue dad bands. But but look at their dads. Like the two dads we see in the film. Like one is like super strict and is very against his son listening to rock music, and the other I think it very much encourages his son to play classical. So I Those don't think they care too much in about their, in their dad duties. Hey, happy Father's Day, everybody! As we record this. Oh yes, indeed. Um, <laughs> my dad taught me about the Who and the Doors and Steely Dan and really like everything that's on this uh, this just album. A, my dad about, yeah. taught me about. So um, we do not come from a big Eric Clapton family, thankfully. No, my dad my, likes my, him okay, but my dad was all about four bands: ACDC and Led Zeppelin and Neil Young and Meatloaf, and that was it. <laughs> And honestly, as I'm thinking about the soundtracks we have done, our dad's influence is so deeply embedded in this podcast. So <laughs> it explains a lot about us as people. Really. It really does. Oh, Wild. <laughs> so <laughs> also our taste the, the... in movies. I think we have very dad taste in movies. We did the color of money for Christ's sakes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> because I was mad about Marvel nerds. Good lord. That's an anyway. extremely dad thing to do. You're shaking your fist at them. Yeah, like the, the cloud made of marble nerds. Anyway, uh, so the the band is set. Dewey explains to the kids that it's a a, a countywide you know, school project for all the schools to create rock bands and to come together at the Battle of the Bands to compete, which is a big fat lie. Yes. Except for the part about the Battle of the Bands. And so they decide, you know, well, what's, what song are we going to play? And Dewey says he's written a song, and they make him perform this song for them. And it is genuinely, truly embarrassing. It's kind of awesome, though. It's very, there's a, a real Rush influence to it. Again, um, the big sort of like prog rock uh, stage setting, if you will, like the light and the whole, like the legend is very, very Rush, very sticks, very yes. Um, and it is called The Legend of the Rent, and we're going to play a clip of it. <laughs> In the ancient time, an artist led the way, but no one seemed to understand. Chimes, Freddy. In his heart he knew the artist must be true, but the legend of the rent was way past due. The, the sad part about this is that the legend of the rent, math, and step off, which are the songs oh, he sort yeah. of makes up for the kids, are not on the soundtrack. And it would have been fun to have full versions of those. Oh, definitely. Like the full band performing these songs. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been cool. That would have been fun. That I think is is one of the places where the soundtrack falls a little short. Right, because the kids are are, are so talented and so good that like, wh- why didn't we get more songs from that band? Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, it would have been much a, a much more interesting soundtrack, and I think it would have taken it over that hump. Because as mm-hmm. it stands, it is a bunch of dad rock with a killer single. Yeah, really. It's and I think that that is why it didn't really last that long or make real progress on the charts is because everybody already has all of these songs in their collection. True. Every kid who's interested in these songs has a dad and every dad ha- already has those albums. Yeah, every dad has The Doors greatest hits. It is issued to you 
If you are like a baby boomer dad, you are issued that. When your child was born, they automatically gave you a copy. Yes. So that, I think, is, is what could have set the soundtrack apart, is if we'd had a full version of The Legend of the Rent. Because it's song, way hardcore. Oh, it is. But it's also 100% a Tenacious D song. It is a million percent a Tenacious D song. Anywho. Oh, yeah. Dewey's trying to teach the kids about like what makes a good punk song or rock song. And it's basically like, what makes you mad? And he gets all the kids in the room to like, basically yell at him how much they hate him. And he asks the one kid whose name I, I do not remember, but he, he calls him Fancy Pants. And the kid says, you, you're tacky and I hate you. I use that a lot. <laughs> yep. It's one of the sort of most beloved lines. Billy. You. Billy, we've already told me off. Let's move on. You're tacky and I hate you. Okay, you see me after class. In this scene, you know, he's really starting to teach the kids about classic rock influences. He hands out um, Blondie. He hands out Yes for the... Uh, he Lawrence gets Yes, and he mentions that the keyboard solo on Roundabout is spectacular. It really is. Mm-hmm. Roundabout is a, an unbelievable song. My dad is a big Yes fan, so I grew up listening see, to them. See, this is the movie that introduced me to Roundabout. Yeah, oh man, Roundabout's so fucking good. Oh, of course. Um, he talks about Rush um, and Neil Peart, which surprises me a little bit. Obviously, I've mentioned Rush a whole bunch. They're not on the soundtrack either. But I would have thought that he would have handed uh, Freddie uh, the Who. Yeah. Keith Moon. Exactly. So, um, not to take anything from Neil Peart, but... Um, I the just... style doesn't fit for this kind of movie. Yes. This kind of soundtrack. Uh, and he gives uh, Zach and Jimi Hendrix, which I, I want to come back to. Put a pin in that. Okay. But at this point, Tamika tells him that she wants to sing, and she has got some incredible pipes. Oh, yeah. She just knocks it out of the park, like, right away. Yeah. She just blows his mind. And it's weird because he gives her Pink Floyd. And it's like, really? You don't have any Aretha Franklin or, you know, Diana Ross or anything i mean again i love pink floyd but they aren't really known for their female vocalists yeah or any just like any any solo vocalist at all Mm -hmm. you know he just goes straight to the classic rock bands yeah so and as we see when he's showing them like the chalkboard of rock later on jack black knows his shit he really does he is he really 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 knows his music and so i thought it's all, again, classic rocks. It's mostly white men. Mm-hmm. And really, the only woman mentioned is Debbie Harry and Blondie. And he later mentions, you know, Aretha Franklin. But mm, I don't know. I, I would have I liked to see it a little more expanse on this. The only woman on the soundtrack is Stevie Nicks. Yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm looking at the chalkboard of rock now, and under the punk section, there's Patti Smith, the Buzzcocks, uh, and Susie and the Banshees. Yes. So he even then, like he he know he definitely knows he's got the the, the full breadth of talent there for sure. Yes, and I I understand why people classify Susie and the Banshees as punk. I personally wouldn't because I think. They belong to a smaller subset when we think about goth rock, but that's a whole different... We'll get into Susie and the Banshees another time. 
Right. And and obviously, like, the whiteboard is only so big. Yes. And, you know, they started in the punk scene, but it's, it's, a, it's a long story. Yeah. Um, and, and just for as far as the whiteboard goes, like, if I'll put a picture of it up because it's interesting. But, like, there's so many different bands that have obviously been, like, erased and marked out and then replaced with other bands. And I'm curious, like... In the Grunge Five between Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Mudhoney, Soundgarden, and Alice in Chains, who did Mudhoney replace? Because he obviously erased something. Mm. And I'm curious. Interesting. Um, we'll call up Jack Black. I bet he'd answer. He, pro- he probably knows exactly what it was. Yes, indeed. Um, anyway, yeah, let's move on from that. Yes. I, um, I would love a poster of the Chalkboard of Rock. Yeah. Honestly, I'm, I want that as a mural in my my house like i'm surprised they didn't sell that to college students they absolutely should have um, i would have bought one yeah but the next song we hear is uh bonzo goes to bitburg by the ramones the, the full title my brain is hanging upside down parentheses bonzo goes to bitburg yes let's go to a clip So that might be the greatest song title in music history. And the story behind it is even better. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay. So the song was written because uh, it was a reaction to then-President Ronald Reagan uh, laying a wreath at the Bitburg Cemetery in West Germany in 1985. Um, now, the problem with that is that there was a lot of Nazi soldiers that buried there. Mm-hmm. And he uh, he was like, they were victims too. Like, I don't think they were. Nope, not the same. Absolutely not the same thing. <laughs> no, 100% no. And um, and so the, the Ramones, of course, all Jewish, wrote this song in response. And it's a dark, dark song. It really is, yeah. And, as you know, you think of, of the Ramones as, you know, rock and roll high school, Cretan Hop, uh, I Want to Be Sedated, sort of like these snarky but kind of fun yeah, pop songs, yeah, like- punk songs. And then you listen to this, and they are not just juvenile punks. This no, is a this- much bigger song. This is an angry song, yeah. And you can hear where bands like Rancid took their influence from this part of the Ramones. Like, I, I hear a lot of, like, Ruby Soho when I hear oh, this one. That's that's a good pull. Yeah, right? definitely. Definitely. Um, and honestly, fuck Reagan for real. Yeah. Fuck him up his stupid ass. <laughs> we're, uh, we're Reagan babies. We can say this. Yeah, exactly. He can get fucked in yeah. hell. Um, mm-hmm. but so yeah this it's an odd song for a music mon- music learning montage scene too don't you think yes um i mean it's good because it does show again sort of the importance of knowing your history but as far as rock history i don't know it doesn't fit quite with i think what's happening i would have gone with uh if i was going to pick a ramon song rock and roll high school is a little too on the nose but i would have gone with Cretan hop because that's like yeah. a that's a fun song for kids. 
But yeah, I, I don't I don't think kids are going to get anything out of this song necessarily as far as like the breadth of the soundtrack goes. But then at the same time, like you think about what's going on in the scene and you kind of hope that Dewey is also teaching these kids like a little bit of like, I guess, media literacy of why the Ramones, not maybe not why they wrote the song, but, you know, the fact that music does not exist in a vacuum at that, that, you know, there's real emotion and feeling and sometimes anger behind well, the songs about that these people sticking write. it to the man. This is absolutely sticking it to the man. This probably sticks it to the man harder than any song on this soundtrack. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So I think that's in that sense, it really does have this, this critical importance to the central thesis of the film. Mm-hmm. So absolutely. Um, but that's, it's a little buried in there. Yeah. It, it, the movie moves on from it very quickly mm-hmm. too. One point that I, I want to make note of before we move on is that in the part of the montage where Dewey is teaching Lawrence how to play the piano, I noticed you know, what he's doing. He's kind of teaching him how to play the piano with a little bit of theatricality at, where he's like shooting the keys. And that is a Chico Marx moves huh. from the Marx Brothers. So like he's not only teaching these kids how to play their instruments, but he's also teaching them how to perform and how to entertain. Yes. Because that's also a huge part of playing rock music. And he does that with Zach. He teaches him about, you know, kind of a, not quite the full windmill, but raising his goblet to the gods of rock. Yes. <laughs> so, which is hysterically funny. It's showing him how to stand, like how to stand like a rock, like a rock god, and how to hold yourself up, and how to present yourself as being the coolest guy in the room mm-hmm. or girl in the room, as it were. Yes, indeed. It is also here in the faculty lounge that we learn that Roz uh, got drunk at a faculty or at a, an alumni event and danced around to Edge of Seventeen. Complete with using a uh, tablecloth as a Stevie Nicks cape. <laughs> Gee, I wonder if that's going to come into play later. <laughs> hmm. And um, this scene, so they sneak out to audition for the Battle of the Bands. And they have to fake being uh, terminally sick kids in order to get their <laughs> yeah. spot. And we see a couple, again, these moments of Jack Black sort of growing up. And this scene where he's talking to Tamika about body positivity uh, just sort of recirculated on Twitter recently about how important that is. Tamika, hey, you've got something everybody wants. You've got talent, girl. You have an incredible singing voice, and I'm not just saying that. You heard of Aretha Franklin, right? Okay, she's a big lady, but when she starts singing... She blows people's minds. Everybody wants to party with Aretha. And um, you know who else has a weight issue? Who? Me. But once I get up on stage, start doing my thing, people worship me because I'm sexy and chubby, man. Why aren't you on a diet? Because I like to eat. Is that such a crime? Right. Like Just just because you may look different does not mean you're any less... Uh, valid or important as a human being. Yeah, like, and he tells her, just rock your heart out. And that's good life advice for anybody. Yeah. Go forth and or, rock out. Where he says, you know, I, he says, look at me, I'm fat. And she's like, well, why don't you go on a diet? And he says, he says without a, a moment's hesitation, because I like to eat. Yeah. Like, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Exactly. Um, 
And he later, he finds Freddy, like, hanging out in a van with some guys who are smoking and drinking and gives them a lecture and calls those guys posers. They are absolutely posers. A hundred percent, And it's in this moment, um, they're playing Black Shuck by The Darkness, which is not on the soundtrack. It was replaced by Growing On Me. So let's go to a clip of that. Can't get you out of my head. Come and tell it I don't care. I prefer Black Shuck. See? If I'm being honest. I prefer Growing On Me. And do you know the reason why they did that? It, because Black Shuck is... is uh... Uh, not appropriate for kids. No, and they didn't want the dreaded explicit lyrics sticker, which would have meant that it couldn't be sold in places like Walmart. <laughs> oh yeah, mm-hmm. but also like that—that that man, that explicit l- lyric sticker would have made this album seem cool, and kids might have bought it. Not ten-year-olds. Eh, maybe. Yeah, maybe not. So it's like. I- yeah, at this point, like, you and I are, like, well past the age of caring about explicit label stickers. I still, like, it's weird. I s- still get a little, like, I'm, like, I'm a almost a 40-year-old woman. I can buy a CD with an explicit label sticker. But I'm, so, I'm, there's that part of me, like, you know, you can do this without swearing. You don't need to be vulgar. Yeah. I, I curse like a trucker. But I, there was that moment with the darkness where there was a brief, brief moment of what looked like there might be a glam rock revival and it was a couple of years after this um but we were so close and yeah that that song uh i believe in a thing called love was everywhere and it's such a uh, that's such a fun song and i didn't realize it's, yeah you know, it's a hoot they also had this one <laughs> and then they were just gone and i remember reading an article in spin about them and it was sort of about uh, the strokes and the darkness and the hives and the killers and the yeah, yeah, yeahs and the changing shift of the music industry and how um, they, if you had a big first album, great. If your second album tanked, you were done. Yeah, and especially but they did not give you many. They did not give you many second chances. No, and especially as we moved more and more towards singles, and sort of of those bands, really only the Killers made it out alive. I guess so. Yeah, because even the White Stripes kind of imploded right after that. Yeah, and the Darkness couldn't do it. They had that. Yeah, they one, just couldn't hang. Yeah, they had that one big album, and then it, they just and they've they've made other albums, but they never had another hit like that. Right, and and as far as I know, they're still out there touring and putting out music. Yeah, just, but they they're never gonna hit that height again. Yeah, which is too bad. We didn't deserve them. No, it was kind of neat to have that uh, that big glittery rock and roll for one last moment in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's it's just it's a style that kind of it had its day, then it had a, a brief second and a half in the sun after the fact. But and we're gonna talk about a little bit of that coming up here because T Rex is coming mm-hmm. up, but um. It, it was it was too pure for this earth, I guess. Yes, indeed. Now, I guess for my part, I, I think the reason I prefer Black Shuck is because it's one of those rock songs that is, like, obviously about the occult. And, like, <laughs> rock songs about the occult are just cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because Black Shuck is about, it's about a ghost dog in in England that, like, haunts a church. 
and like the story behind that's kind of more more fascinating than the actual uh, song. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I guess the other reason is they didn't want to they didn't want even a hint of like satanic panic on this album, which is crazy <laughs> so, again because so what's more rock and roll than satanic panic? Exactly. Wild. Yeah, there's some there's some weird choices in this film as far as as that kind of thing. It but they're subtle. They're subtly yeah, weird choices, like the, like this replacement. So, and they're all like corporate choices, which is kind of the the death knell of of rock music. I think is like, oh, you can see all the corporate choices that they made to put this album out and to get it to be a success. MTV killed rock and roll. It sure did. Yeah, God, it sure did. Like we, I know we we talk about that a lot. Like the mid two thousands killed rock and roll, but God, if it isn't true, mm-hmm. it's funny. Because we talk about Empire Records as being, you know, a soundtrack in search of a movie and how it was this very sort of corporate amalgamation of like, these are hip. But School of Rock is not really that different. It's just that School of Rock is endearing and 90% of that is Jack Black and Empire Records is insufferable and all of that is everybody. It's kind of the opposite problem. It's it's a, it's a movie in search of a soundtrack. Yeah, and because, it kind of deserved a yeah. like more kicking soundtrack. But this, it, they all just kind of got you know major label classic hits. Yeah. So yep. sadly, although uh, there is a, a school of rock musical, it is by Andrew Lloyd Webber. I do not want to see it. It sounds terrible. Andrew Lloyd Webber. Yep. Like I knew it existed. I did not know he had a hand yes, in it. Indeed. Oh my god! Wow. No, thank you. Nah, I'm good. I'm good, y'all. I'm going to pass on that one. So we should get back on track. (laughs) Yes, because now that the the kids have basically conned their way into the Battle of the Bands, uh, they return to school triumphant. And this is where we play (sighs) perhaps the most famous song on the soundtrack. I don't know. It's a Led Zeppelin song, everybody. It's Immigrant Song, specifically. Let's go to a clip. Now, there's a great story behind this song, Joe. So why don't you? Yeah. Um, so they knew already they wanted this song in the film. And Led Zeppelin is like famously, or at least at the time, was famously litigious and famously uh, against artists putting their songs in their films. I mean, like one of the big deleted scenes from the movie Almost Famous is where the main character the main character plays Stairway to Heaven for his mom in its entirety. And Led Zeppelin just said no. Well, that's... Um... <laughs> There's there's that joke in Wayne's world where he goes to start playing Stairway to Heaven and they point to the signs yeah. as, you know, no stairway, stairway oh, denied. Stairway denied. <laughs> so for this film, uh, Richard Linkletter and Jack Black hatched a scheme where during the, the shoot of the big battle of the band scene at the end, they would make a video, a video plea directly to Led Zeppelin where they would beg them with the power of the full audience behind them to let them use immigrant song in the film. And they, they sent it over to Led Zeppelin and apparently they were amused because they eventually said yes. And so immigrant song is in this film in a scene where Jack Black drives a, a van back to school and they sing the song and that's it. And it made me wonder, was all of that really necessary? I love it. 
I what this is I don't I don't love Led Zeppelin, but I do like this song because obviously everybody does. It's a little bit of a cliche. Um because this has again like that big elaborate prog hard rock feel, but I feel like it doesn't overstay its welcome. I I I mean the song is fine. I, my my beef is more with like the use of it in the movie. Like you went through all of that trouble to get this song. And then you throw it away in a scene where, like, a character drives a van from point A to point B. Like, no, you, you but it's there, they can bond over it. I guess so, but it just doesn't... I just it, can't imagine any other song in that scene, though. There's something iconic about Jack Black, like, doing that scream. I guess, but, like, aren't there, aren't there any other, like, rock and roll screams that he could do? Not as good as this one. I don't know. This just never sat right with me, by the way. Like, I've, I've held on to this for almost 20 years. That I oh, wow. don't like this scene just because like, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a great song and they b- bit over backwards to get the rights to it. And then to, in my mind, they just kind of blew it. I don't know. I, I'm kind of fine with it. Uh, maybe I'm making too much <laughs> of it. But like as as smart as so many other of the, of the choices are in this film, this one just fumbled it for me. I don't know. Eh, agree to disagree, but that's fine. I'm not like married to it, but okay. Me. Also, like in the uh, like the behind the scenes clip where they show that video, Jack Black says, "Without this song, this movie will crumble into smithereens." Which I, I get, he's pitching it to the band, but still, like, really, that's really? adorable. This is the linchpin of your entire movie. Are you kidding Jack me? Jack Black is so earnest. I love his <laughs> earnestness. I appreciate that. Okay, and that's again, this is one of the things I really love about Jack Black is there's not a trace of irony or anything. Like he's just. He's right there. He, yeah, he is. He lives, He's wholly present. He lives 100% in his truth, and I, I appreciate that. Sure. Yeah, which for guys his age, most Gen Xers are so just like deeply versed in sarcasm that it's refreshing, frankly. Mm-hmm. So um, our next song actually um, is uh, The Black Keys' Set You Free. At this point, um, Dewey has taken Roz out to a bar i think with the intent of getting her to sign off on this field trip and we hear the black keys set you free Mm -hmm. which all i have on that is that this is what 2003 sounded like in a nutshell yeah like this is one of like two or three contemporary songs on the album and boy oh boy could you tell yes and and it's got that blues rock influence we've got the fuzz box again Mm -hmm. it's distorted and sort of unpleasant and it's blending a little bit. It's a little bit garage rock, um, but with a much more contemporary sound. Yeah, this song sounds like it wants to sell me some skinny jeans. Fair enough. Uh, but more importantly, we get Stevie Nicks doing Edge of 17. Yeah. What can, what can we say about Stevie Nicks? Just that, that hasn't been she's said. radiant. And this is just such an awesome, badass song. Mm-hmm. And Wadi Watchtel, who is Warren Zevon's guitarist, uh, plays the guitar on it. Oh, nice. Yeah. And it was apparently inspired by Tom Petty's wife. She misheard her uh, saying that we uh, met at the age of 17. Oh, wow. And... 
she misheard it as Edge of Seventeen. I mean, that, that's a and, that's a good a good pull though, because Edge of Seventeen is just so evocative as a as yeah a exactly period of time. Um, and it's it's funny because again, like that's it's an iconic title and an iconic lyric, and it was something she misheard, and th- a lot of it was sort of inspired by um, her uncle's death from cancer, but also the fact that um, she was reading a menu at a restaurant in Phoenix, and. The it had some trivia about how a white winged dove sings a song that sounds like she's singing ooh ooh ooh. She makes her home here in the great uh Sagardo cactus that provides shelter and protection from her. So that again, iconic from a fucking menu. Was she ordering food from the Jay Peterman catalog or something? <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> what kind of a restaurant is this? <laughs> oh my god. Uh, I also love that like there's a, a recent interview with Stevie Nicks from last year where she had to confess that she had never actually heard what the sound of a dove's call was before until like a year ago. Yeah. <laughs> Stevie Nicks is so she's so odd and fabulous. She's wonderful. But she uh, of of all of the, like the classic rock stars who may or may not be a witch, she I think is actually a witch. She's absolutely a witch, and it is while it is Father's Day, it is also uh, solstice. So yes. to Stevie Nicks, we say happy solstice. Happy solstice, everybody. <laughs> and Principal Mullins is talking about how you know she used to be really fun, and now she just feels like she can't make a mistake, and she truly understands what it's like to be a woman in the working world. I, I, you kind of feel bad for her after a certain point in this film. You feel deeply bad for you, her you because re- she's... Yeah, you realize like what she's putting up with every day, and it just crushes her soul. Mm-hmm. And that really is what it's like. Like you can't make a mistake, or it's over. And yeah, poor Principal Mullins. And she has to deal with these fucking like it's a whole room full of Karens. It really, it's all... nightmare Karen yeah. parents. Good lord! But also like this one scene where he he takes her out for a drink to ask her about you know this field trip, which is the Battle of the Bands. And you get the sense that this accidentally turns into a date and that there's actually there may or may not be something there between her and Dewey. Mm-hmm. Which is never fully explored, which I'm actually OK with. Yeah, it's it's fine because, you know, eventually he's going to get found out and probably sent to prison. So that's fine. <laughs> but also, like, you know, it would it would be nice if, if things worked out for people, you know. Yeah, exactly. Now, the next day we find. Uh, yeah, Zach has written the song that will become School of Rock. And it's awesome. But alas, so they, they're, you know, they think they're going to do this song and he makes it rock. But it's parent teacher night and Ned has found out that Dewey is impersonating him. And Dewey basically has to confess. And then once Dewey confesses it to Ned, Ned's girlfriend basically beats it out of him. Uh, she calls the cops and he runs out of the school to uh, TVI by the Stooges. Let's go to a clip. Is this punk song seriously five and a half minutes long? Yes. 
That's the most punk thing of all. Stooges I guess, don't give like, a shit. I, I was listening to this and like I enjoying it, but also the revelation hit me. Like I've been listening to this punk song for way too long. Oh yeah, and again, this is what we think about like the Stooges because we tend to think about punk as you know the Ramones, uh, Rancid, Green Day. Yeah, like short, and, short and sweet little like punk songs. Yeah, yeah three then... minutes, surf inspired, but punk in its earliest days was anything that wasn't rock and roll. Yeah. And, uh, you know, stuff that would later branch out into sort of art rock or uh, goth or, you know, all these different branches. Obviously, Patti Smith is the godmother of punk, but Patti Smith does not sound like the offspring. Oh, no. So this is punk more as a state of being rather than a musical set of rules. Um and I don't know. Uh, actually, uh, Wild Rats, fronted by Ewan McGregor, does a really good version of this in Velvet Goldmine, which is something yeah, we will never get around to doing. Well, but I think we've already discussed that on an, uh, one of our Under Fives episodes. We did. Not. So, so welcome back, TBI. Yes, exactly. Um, and I, I think I prefer that version only because I heard it first. But obviously, I do love Iggy Pop and I do love the Stooges. So, right. That's fine. Uh, I actually prefer them to T Rex. Who we just missed. We should have talked about them a minute ago. Because in the scene where Dewey confesses to Ned what he's been doing, uh, the song Ballroom of Mars by T-Rex is playing in the background. Yeah, I don't... That one doesn't land for me. It's it's fine. I, I'll say the, like... It took me three or four listens to really get into it. And it's just it's kind of a mood more than anything else. Yeah. A T-Rex never landed for me. I, I, yeah, I guess I'll say I get it, but it's not my kind of music, not my thing. Which is weird, because I just went on an extended riff about the darkness and glam rock, and then I'm like, nah, I don't know about T-Rex. <laughs> yeah, we, we said we were going to talk about T-Rex, and then we're like, eh, T-Rex. Yeah. Oh, well. They're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame now. Good for them. Good for, I mean, good the replacements aren't in there, but that's fine. That's fine. That's yeah. fine. One, one of these days. That's fine. Billy Joel's in there, but, you know, whatever. It's cool. Yeah. It's okay. Morrissey's, you know, the Smiths aren't in there, but... That's Green Day is. That's great. They're on the same ballot. It's fine. You're not salty about that at all, are I'm you? I'm not salty about anything. Okay. Long story short, they get to the Battle of the Bands. They're going to do it, even if Dewey is probably going to jail. Which, again, we know Dewey doesn't end up going to jail, but he probably should. Yeah, probably. Um, but kids, the kids break out the... of school. You got it. Rouse him. Take him to the Battle of the Bands, and we hear No Vacancy performing Heal Me, I'm Heartsick, which is the worst song on the soundtrack. Unquestionably. Let's go to a clip. I'm lonely as a star. Heal me. Now, it's supposed to be the worst song in the soundtrack. Anyone who likes this song is missing the entire point of the film. The whole point is that now No Vacancy sucks because... There's one guy in the audience who loves this song. Yes. If that guy's <laughs> the worst. Um, this is like a Creed knockoff. It's syrupy. That uh, Spider is wearing a shirt. Uh, it's not even a shirt. It's just sleeves. Get like leather sleeves. What the hell is that? Yes, it's a weird long torso. Um, and it's supposed to be garbage. Yeah, because like, 
This is the, the, this is the movie basically saying this is what rock music has become. Yes, and it's terrible, and it it has no hook. It's just saccharine and miserable, and not miserable in the way like a good rock song, like we talked about, like when you listen to a sad song and it makes you want to lie down on the floor, like mm-hmm. in True Stories. Yep. Just like the kind that leeches the calcium from your bones until you are rubbery. It's melodies for mom is how I I described it in my notes. Oh, God, no. This is melodies for suburban dads who've lost their heart. Like, this is what Ned listens to when Ned is sad. Oh, poor Ned. Fuck Ned. (laughs) Ned could have been a satanic sex god, and he's not. Honestly, this this song sounds like my ex-almost brother-in-law. Oh, like wow. Seth Bates, this song is for you. This song 100% predicted the rise of Chris Daughtry. Exactly. And we, and for that we cannot we can never forgive this. No. I will it's... never forgive this transgression. You <laughs> you've put on this earth Richard Linkletter, you fucking Nostradamus of rock music you. <laughs> Cameron Crowe would never. No. <laughs> we come full circle from bashing Cameron Crowe to saying Cameron Crowe would never put this in a film. Yes, but he's doing it ironically. Because you're not uh, supposed to like there, this. There Even it is. He has unleashed hell upon us. <laughs> yes. With his good ironic intentions. But it leads us to the song School of Rock. Yes. Let's just the- go to a clip. Doing to make fire And now baby oh I'm alive Oh yeah makes me tear up inside yeah it's honestly like i i didn't expect to get caught up in it again the way i did the first time because like i'm i'm over your your saccharine ploys for my emotions movie but no this no. the song just hit me the song it just you it, you feel it you feel it at every stage of your life um obviously the the uniform that he's wearing is uh an angus young inspired ACDC schoolboy outfit. And the opening riff that he plays is very much like a for those about to rock, we salute you kind of riff. Yes. Um, but the the keys uh, really crib from Wonka Fooled Again. They do, yeah. K- kind of nakedly, but they, they sort of turn it into something completely different. Mm, I wouldn't go that far. Well, I mean, it, the the point and tone of the song i think is a little more upbeat than won't get fooled again. oh yeah oh, i was just yeah just musically i was just saying yeah, yeah. yeah that's basically the, the no it's the same song but they kind of use it to like a different end yeah and i think you know you really do you hear all of the influences come together yeah like you, you get the the acdc riff you get the 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 who sort of chord progression uh when lawrence does his keyboard solo that's almost exactly uh the keyboard intro to a sticks song and, and- yeah but here's the thing. So when we hear the the guitars, those aren't Hendrix guitars. No. And he was given Hendrix as an assignment. And I think that's where we lose a little bit. I think you could have gone back and melded these influences a little stronger. Like given yeah. Lawrence the who, uh, you know, given each of them what would eventually become this magical stew that would feed our souls 
Right. And especially when, when Tamika goes up and does her, her verse, it's, it's not Pink Floyd at all. No. Yeah. So I think I sort of heard um, Patty Austin in that. Okay. Yeah. But um, I think that's, that's the one misstep in, in tying this all together. I think that they missed it, an opportunity, right? Yeah, there. It, it kind it almost gets there, but like that that one extra step they needed to really make it sing mm-hmm. is is huh. just missing. Like, yeah, yeah. but like it's, but, it's, it it does it takes the like the whole breadth of classic rock and kind of boils down certain elements in and mashes it into one song. And in that in that respect, it works like absolutely. And that you know the parents who broke you know who found them, they realize like oh this is making their kids happy and their kids are really talented and. You know, they learn to accept their children, blah, blah. But uh, No Vacancy wins the contest. Yeah. And that tells you everything you need to know about the music scene in 2003. That we were done with these bands, with the classic rock scene that that we'd seen have these this revival through the late 90s. Um, we were going to have, like, these last sort of grasps of garage rock and then it was out we were out and for good or for ill you know certainly the rise of of hip-hop and you know you've got all sorts of great musical influences coming in right now but at the same time so much music is produced by one dude and it all sounds the same and jack black was fighting that and even our rock bands, so bands like No Vacancy, all had this same schlocky corporate sound. Yeah, this is this is that era when like uh, Maroon Five technically counted as a rock band. Yeah, gross. But like you, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like that's yeah. definitely true. Like that happened. Yes. It's still happening. Maroon Five is the only rock band left. We've got <sighs> the Killers. The Killers just put out a song with Springsteen for Christ's sakes. The Killers have taken their place. Okay. I will not. I will not stand for killers erasure. Um. But that was that was it. We were kind of heading out of a rock and roll era and into a pop focused era. And this movie accidentally predicted that, or mm-hmm. more more likely saw the writing on the wall. And it's nice because we get to see the kids perform uh, A Long Way to the Top by ACDC over the credits and sort of as their encore and then over the credits as Dewey forms the School of Rock after school program. That's that's it. Yeah, that's our that's, outro. To, to bring it back down to ACDC and like ending the film on It's a Long Way to the Top when rock music is now basically at its nadir, like it's the low the low point of the rock music as a genre. I don't know what that says about anything really, but it's definitely a mood in 2003. Like rock music is, is definitely on the outs and you feel it. And I I think I still feel it now. Like I wish I could just turn on, you know, a a pop radio station and hear a, in in any rock band. I don't care if it's fucking one Republic, just play something that sounds like a guitar, please. One, that's a Star Wars game. I don't believe that that's actually a band. <laughs> Listen, the Galactic Republic is made up of many small republics. But together, <laughs> they form one republic. Gross. Fucking kill me, please. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, you, you set that up for me, and I appreciate that. 
You're welcome. I I aim to assist. We could go a lot into, you know, the fact that this this soundtrack is entirely white. Yep. It's mostly male. Mm-hmm. And we could, you know, if we had more time, we could certainly talk about how, while that is the landscape of rock and roll at that time, it's in part because we weren't giving opportunities to underrepresented groups. And they certainly existed. So we can't sit there and pretend that they didn't. They played at Woodstock. Obviously, Jimi Hendrix. Oh, so, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, like, guys, no, it, no, no mention of Carlos Santana in any of this. No. Yeah, exactly. Um, and certainly no mention of, you know, women rock and rollers outside of Stevie Nicks. Yeah, they, they reference Blondie very briefly. But yep, yeah. and then you see, you know, Patti Smith and Susie Sue on the board. So right. it could do more for its influences, but it's also a family children's movie. Mm-hmm. And that might be asking a lot of 2003. That's true. This is still very much like the, the W era of uh, everything. Yeah. So uh, while we're not excusing it, we, you know. We also recognize the limitations within the genre yeah. and within the screenwriter's expertise. And it, and it makes me wonder, though, because like the there is, a, we mentioned a Nickelodeon series that ran for three seasons. Obviously, it's not a, for us. So I, it makes me wonder, though, if that series did sort of bring in any any other influences that this film kind of lacked, you know? Possibly, the, I doubt the, it. The, oppor- the opportunity, yeah, the opportunities there, but whether or not they did uh, is not... Not for us to say, but hey, if you know and you want to let us know, definitely you know give us a shout on Twitter. Yes, and I think my final thought on this one is it's a better movie than a soundtrack. Yes. And the soundtrack is solely bolstered by the song School of Rock. It's a fine soundtrack. It's just that you have most of it already in your collection. But yeah, I mean, School of Rock is, is a perfectly fun time. I actually en- really enjoyed uh, revisiting this one. Absolutely. It in a long time. But it's well worth a watch. But the album, yeah, it, it leaves a little something to be desired. It could have yeah. been better. Yeah, except give it, give yourself another chance to listen to the song School of Rock. It will make your whole day better. It really will. I 100% agree with that. Yes. So what are we doing next time, Joe? Well, next time on the show, we are going way back to the mid-90s to discuss the soundtrack to Clueless. As if. <laughs> I know, right? Totally bugging about that. Oh, my God. I don't think I'm ready for this one. <laughs> Grab your knee-high socks and your uh, your feather pens and meet us back here for Clueless. Co-starring the ageless wizard himself, Paul Rudd. Yes, indeed. Oh, boy. But until then, folks, uh, if you'd like to contact us on Twitter, we're at OST Party. Or if you want to send us uh, questions or comments or anything you'd like to our email, that is OSTPartyPod at gmail.com. Libby, where can our listeners find you? You can find me on Twitter at Libby Cudmore. You can find me on Instagram at record underscore Saturday. Or you can find me over at the Shattered Shield podcast. We're coming to the end of that ride. It's, we're in season seven. It's um, Oh, boy. I know. Kind of a bummer. So, Joe, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Cordial Wombat. Or if you want to hear me yell about Christmas movies, I'm on the Christmas Creeps podcast at Christmas Creeps. We just finished a trilogy of films titled Let It Snow, each Yikes. one progressively worse than the last. Amazing. I don't know how you find this shit. There's always more and it's always worse. Oh, boy. 
<laughs> so for the OST party, I'm Joseph Wade. And I'm Libby Cudmore. Buy the ticket. Take the ride. It took, it took. I tell you people, it's hard